If you have your Bibles with you, if you could turn to Luke chapter 20, verse 39. Remember, Jesus has just gotten done talking about the resurrection at the end of time. The Sadducees challenged him with a question. They said if there was a, if there was a woman who had seven brothers from the same family as, as her husband, who was husband, who would be her husband in the resurrection? And Jesus proceeded to explain how uh, we would be like the angels when we get to heaven. There will be neither marrying nor giving in marriage. Marriage is a wonderful gift uh, for this earthly journey, one that I continue to pray daily for. Um, but it's a gift that will only last for our earth's journey. And so Jesus put that out there and explained it in detail in our last time together. And so he's going to go in an interesting direction. So let's just read um, the first section that we have here. And I titled today's message, I don't, I know I don't do, I don't always give you a title, but I just titled today's message, Jesus Continues to Challenge the Religious Leaders. Um, a lot of times people say, well, we shouldn't judge because we're Christians, we should just love. But Jesus never backed down from a challenge. And um, so I think he can teach us a lot about the proper way to share the truth and to challenge people in it. So our first section is, um, our first point is Jesus speaks of his deity and his humanity. And the verses that we're going to cover is um, Luke twenty thirty nine to 47. Then certain of the scribes answering said, Master, thou hast well said. And after that, they durst not ask him any question at all. I always find that interesting about Jesus. There is another passage um, where the religious leaders were going to arrest Jesus. They, they sent the temple guard. They said, arrest this man before he causes any more trouble. And by trouble, they meant before he takes any of our, more of our popularity away. Because you'll know, you'll, you'll remember that when he, wrote, when he caused Lazarus to rise from the dead, um, they weren't concerned that he was doing the wrong thing. And they couldn't deny the resurrection of Lazarus because they knew he was dead. And many of them watched him rise. But what they say in that passage is, He's taking away our popularity among the people. They were more concerned about their popularity among the people than doing the right thing. I think of, the, as an Old Testament example, King Saul. He, when, when he disobeyed Samuel and kept cattle alive, he basically said, um, worship your God with me. And Samuel said, no, I'm not going to. And then he said, but the people, they, won't, they, they will be upset, essentially, if they don't see me worshiping God. So come back and worship God with me. So that, but that wasn't the reason, the proper reason, to worship God. And Jesus is going to expose some of that same attitude in um, these Pharisees. 
But they decided not to ask him any questions. So he decides, I'm going to ask you a question. And he said unto them, How say they that Christ is David's son? And David himself saith in the book of Psalms, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit on my right hand till I make thine enemies my, thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore calleth him Lord, how is he then his son? Then in the audience of all the people he said unto his disciples, Beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms of the feast who devour, who devour women's houses and for a show make long prayers, the same shall receive greater damnation. And so Jesus is saying, we're going to get to the crux of the matter. We talked about the resurrection. I talked about the end of days. But he's, he's saying here that the most important thing when you come to the end of days is what you do with me. What is your opinion? What is your response to me. And he said and he was he was already well respected by many as the son of David. Remember, um, blind Bartimaeus would say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And and he was in the lineage of David, and he was respected at least as a rabbi by many. And so he's saying, I'm known as the son of David. But then he's bringing them to the Psalms and he's saying, the son of David is also your Lord. And he's essentially saying here, that's me. So the, 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 the decision that you have to make is whether you're, going to, if you, whether you're going to embrace both sides of me. My humanity and my divinity all rolled into one. Now that's something that I don't, to this day, fully comprehend. That Jesus could be fully human and yet fully God. Some people say that the Holy Spirit descending on him like a, like a, like a dove gave him his divinity, but that's not true. He was divine and he was present at the beginning of time. Even Solomon, when he's writing the Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 30, he's talking about the creation of the world and he says, who is he, no, what is his name and what is his son's name if you know it? I find that so fascinating because this was thousands of years before Jesus would come on the earth in human form and yet Solomon is saying he has a name. He has a name and now we know that it's a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord of the glory of God the Father. And so he's, he's talking here about the need to make him Lord. And to place your faith and trust in him. Then in the audience of all the people... He said unto his disciples, so he's speaking directly to his disciples, no doubt more people heard, but he's speaking to his disciples, much like the Sermon on the Mount, 
we often think, well, he's speaking to this large group of people, and maybe he was. We don't know how many assembled for the Sermon on the Mount, but his words were directed at his disciples. If you read Matthew chapter 5, it says, He went up into a mountain, and when he was set, he opened his mouth and taught his disciples, saying... So these are important things for his disciples specifically to know so that they can pass it on to others. And he says this in verse 46, Beware the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogue and the chief rooms at feasts which devour, devour widows' houses and for a show make long prayers and they shall receive the greater damnation. Every sinner is worthy of hell. I'm worthy of hell. Everyone who does not repent will have an eternity in hell. But it seems in a few places in Scripture to indicate that we will be judged based on our works. And so there, there may very well be degrees of discomfort in hell, if you can think of it. Because he's saying these religious leaders, they're supposed to know the truth, they're supposed to be preaching the truth, they're supposed to be protecting you and showing you God, and they're not doing it, and they're going to receive a greater damnation. One thing I always tell my, uh, the, my audiences when I go preach in the jail is, because I, I know that in some of their minds they're like, well, what about the, the, the remotest tribe in all the world who does not know God? What will God do with them at the end of time? I can't honestly answer that, but I do know this, that we will be held accountable for what we do know, and I always tell them, you are receiving the gospel today. And God will say to you eventually that you had the opportunity to embrace the gospel and you didn't do it. He's not going to ask you about that remote tribe. He's going to ask you what you did with the gospel. And then he just talks about um, which devour widow's house Houses. You know, God loves widows. One thing that has bothered me for years is that I see many churches invest in huge programs for a variety of reasons, and they're not all intrinsically bad. But if we get back to the basics, the primary goal, the primary program of the early church would be to care for the widows. And I think that we need to come back to a place where we are caring for the widows in our churches and we take that seriously. I know of a, of a particular story someone I knew who homeschooled her children and then her husband died. And her church began to pray that she would get a job so she could provide for their needs. Now, I may be unpopular for saying this, but I do not believe that was the right prayer to pray. 
Because I believe that it was the responsibility of that church to provide for her. She was a true widow. Her husband was gone. Her children were too young to help her. I believe they needed to provide for her so that she could continue to do what was on her heart to do, which is to homeschool her children. That's a primary program and function of the church is to care for widows who are widows indeed and to prize them. Jesus prized the widow. And we're going to see him do that again in this passage. Even some of the things we do for God, God's going to condemn us for. Remember what he said to the Pharisees when he said, you, you take away your, your parents' livelihood and you, you say, it's a gift, so I can't provide for them because I'm giving to God. One of the primary ways you give to God is to provide for your family. One of my friends this past week posted something about um, uh, how your different kids will react as you get older. One of the things was this kid will pick your nursing home. I don't have a problem with nursing homes. They, They meet a vital need. But let me tell you one thing. I'm the oldest of 11 children. If my parents have to go to a nursing home for any other reason than a major medical need, shame on us. Because it's my responsibility as their oldest son to make sure they're provided for. Yes, my resources may be limited, but I will shout that to my siblings as much as I need you to get the point across. I have good siblings, so I don't think it will be a problem, but I'm just saying, we have lost what it means to be families. We have instead become groups of individuals who happen to live under one roof for a period of time, only to walk away and do our own thing when we're old enough. I don't think that's what God wants us to do. So Jesus goes from this talking about his humanity and his deity and what we need to do with him. And he goes into As he's continuing to warn the religious leaders, he goes into this short passage, first four verses of Luke 21. Luke 21, 1 to 4. It says, And he looked up and saw rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a certain poor widow casting in thither two mites. And he said, Of a truth I say unto you, that this poor widow has cast in more than they all. For all these have of their abundance cast in in unto their offerings of God, but she of her punery hath cast in all the living that she had. 
And I, and I think about this, and, my, and the first instinct is to condemn those other people. I don't think Jesus was necessarily condemning the others. But I think his point was that it's not the amount that we give. It's the heart with which we give. You see, when I was a teenager, early teens especially, I, I lamented not being able to do more for God. That was a big argument that I had between him and me was, hey, I know that you supposedly don't make any mistakes, but you really screwed up here because if you had given me a healthy body, then I could serve you. And God proceeded to show me after nine years of my stubbornness that it wasn't about the amount of duty that the world thinks is good. It was about getting out of his way and letting him work through me and to do what I can do. I, it's not going to be about who did the most when we get to heaven. It's about who did what he asked. And I'm trying to do that. Do I succeed 100% of the time? No. My family sees some of the rougher sides of me. They know. But I do know one thing, that God has been faithful. And that if I, as I have followed him, and as I have done what he's asked me to do, and as I, and as I have dedicated myself to preaching the word of God, he has given me opportunities that I never would have expected. He's brought people into my life that I never would have expected to be in my life. Because I was faithful to him. I just want to go back before going forward and look at a quick cross-reference in Revelation chapter 22. Speaking of the deity of Christ, Revelation 22, 16. If someone gets there, they can read it for us. I, Jesus, have sent my angels to testify unto you these things in the church. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. So again, he's saying, in, in the physical lineage, I'm the root and offspring of David, but he's the bright and morning star. He is deity and humanity personified. And remember, David was told, I'm going to bless you, the Lord said to David, I'm going to bless you so much that your throne is going to be established forever. Now how is that possible? The only way that's possible is if an eternal being takes the throne of David. And that eternal being is Jesus Christ. The bright and morning star. Now as we continue in Luke 21, to finish up, we'll see Jesus is going to talk about future events. 
And the main event that he is talking about is the destruction of the temple, which would happen in 70 A.D. But let's just read this, and then we'll make a few, have a few thoughts. Verse 5 of Luke 21, And as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, he said, As for these things which ye will behold, the days will come in which there shall be not one stone left upon another. Then they shall be thrown down, that they, they shall not be thrown down. And they asked, saying, Master, but when shall these things be? And what shall the sign, what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? And he said, Take heed that you be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. And the time draws near, go ye not therefore after them, But when you shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified, for these things must first come, back, come to pass, but the end is not by and by. Then said he unto them, Nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and great earthquakes shall be in diverse places, and famines and pestilences, and fearful sightings, and great signs shall there be from heaven. And so, and I'm just going to um, read the next four verses as well and go through 15. But before all these things, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it therefore in your hearts not to meditate before what you shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. Now again, I don't think that this is saying that preparation is always a bad thing. But I think what Jesus is saying here is Destruction will come. Bad things will come. And in an earthly sense, it's going to seem like it goes from bad to worse because the temple is going to be destroyed and there's going to be earthquakes and there's going to be pestilence and there's going to be fearful sights and signs from heaven. And on top of all this, they're going to lay their hands on you and take you before rulers. But don't worry about what you'll say. Because in the hour that you need words, I will give them to you. I, I have never been brought before a ruler because of my belief. But I have had times when I felt prompted by God to share the gospel and not knowing what I was going to, to say. But God gave me the words. My favorite story in this regard was several years ago I was in the uh, Grand Rapids bus station. I used to be dropped off back when I worked at Guiding Light Mission. I used to be dropped off two hours before I had to work. So I had about an hour, 
to an hour and a half where I just sat in the bus station and either listened to music or read my Bible. And one day I was reading my Bible before work and these gentlemen came in on, I think it was the Greyhound bus, and they had accents. And they sat down next to me. They actually asked if they could, I, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, they actually asked if they could sit next to me. And so I said yes. And I started talking to them. I asked them where they were from, and they said, we're from Ethiopia. And so, and I was reading in my Bible, and I don't remember if I was reading it that day or I had read it, read it recently or what, but my mind immediately went to the Ethiopian eunuch. And I opened Acts chapter 8, and I shared with them the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. And I said, God can do for you what he did for the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, they didn't make any decisions that day. They thanked me politely and went on their way. But I'm just so thankful that God gave me that passage. And to think, sitting in a bus station in Grand Rapids, that God would bring people from Ethiopia to talk to me that day, I know it wasn't a coincidence. So I won't be surprised at all if I see them one day in glory. So, be ready for what God might do. I know I even need to get better at praying for God to specifically bring people into my path so that I can continue to witness for him. I'm not always good at that. But if we pray, he will answer. That's the kind of prayer he delights to answer, I'm sure. And of course, we, we've, it seems to me that we've seen a steady increase in natural disasters lately. And uh, I think it was Hurricane Katrina that actually caused severe damage in New York. And people have had never thought of New York as hurricane country before then. But definitely we see these pestilences cropping up in places that are not normal. I think it was two, two years ago in May when we had... Um, two earthquakes hit Grand Rapids in the same month. They weren't severe. Most of us didn't even feel them, but some people had damage from them, and other people had stories of what they experienced when they went through them. And who would have thunk that Michigan would be an earthquake state? One of my favorite things about growing up in Michigan is that we have very minimal natural disasters compared to other states. It's one of the biggest reasons why even though I hate the winter, I stay in Michigan. Um, but we see that all this is prophesied. None of it's a surprise to God. I think that's the most comforting thing to me is that none of what we go through is a surprise to God. He knows what he's doing. There was some race riots that took place this weekend. I forget the location. It's irrelevant. But 
It was sad to think that any of God's creatures would think that they were superior to others. It says in Philippians, to let each esteem others better than themselves. To do nothing through strife or vainglory, but to do everything to the glory of God. We fall short. But thankfully God has a way to make up for our shortcomings. I love this verse, verse 14 of 21. Settle it therefore in your hearts not to meditate before what you shall answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom. I like that phrase, a mouth and wisdom. Both are important. Unfortunately, in some ways, he gave me a mouth before he gave me wisdom. But I've learned a lot over the years. But he says, I'll give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay or resist. As we come closer and closer to the end of Luke, and we, we, we stand on the precipice of getting into Acts, Lord willing, we will find a man named Stephen, who you know, you'll notice that when he gave his sermon in Acts chapter 7, the people were cut to the heart. They had no response to what he said. Just like Jesus said, they couldn't gainsay what he said. So what do they do? They gnashed their teeth. And they grabbed him and they threw him out of the synagogue. And, and they brought him to the outskirts of the city and they stoned him to death. Because they couldn't say anything against him. So they're like, let's eliminate him. Remember, when Lazarus was risen from the dead, they couldn't gainsay that either. So what was their response? They're like, let's kill Lazarus. He was dead once, let's, let's make him dead again. They said, we can't gainsay anything that this Jewish carpenter says, even though to, to the best of our knowledge, he's Joseph's son. No one speaks like this man. We can't say anything against him. We can't prevail against him, so let's, let's nail him to a cross. Let's get the Romans to do our dirty work. Ah, but he rose again. He didn't stay dead. And his disciples went throughout all the world preaching the gospel until they each died a martyr's death with the exception of John the Apostle. Chuck Colson relates that to him, one of the biggest proofs for the resurrection is that the disciples never wavered in the truth. Even though for those who were lying about the Watergate scandal, they all caved within a year. He's like, he's like, we all gave up the lie within a year and went to prison. Because we couldn't hold the lie. And yet the supposed lie of the resurrection is still going forth. Why is it still going forth? Because it's true. Because Jesus lives. And because the living Jesus is still changing lives. 
your life hasn't been changed by the living word, I would ask you, why have you not surrendered to him yet? The gospel is simple. Paul said it this way. Jesus was buried according to the scriptures. Jesus died according to the scriptures, was buried in a tomb according to the scriptures, and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And he did that because without him, we would not have the strength to attain salvation. Nothing we could do would gain salvation. I find it interesting that he's, that he's saying these words about n- not worrying about what you'll say. And no doubt, Peter was there. And it wouldn't be too long after this that Peter would deny ever knowing Christ. Because he relied on his flesh and not on the Spirit of God. But God redeemed Peter. He restored him. As a matter of fact, after the resurrection, it says, go tell the disciples and Peter that I go before you into Galilee. Because he wanted Peter to specifically know, I see your repentant heart, and I forgive you. Maybe you've spent a long time going the wrong way. But he wants your heart. He wants to know you in a personal way. And maybe you do know him. I trust that every single person here does, but I don't I never take that for granted when I preach. But maybe you do know him and maybe you're going through a rough time. Remember that he said, and he still does today, come unto me all who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, he he was often talking about the yoke that the Pharisees bore. In that same passage where I was talking about the way that you treat your family and how you say that it's a gift so you don't have to take care of your family. He said, "You're, you're giving the people a weight on their shoulders that you can't even bear yourself. That's why Paul wrote Galatians and said, who has bewitched you to believe in the power of the law? He says, stand fast therefore in the liberty that you've gained through Christ. And don't use liberty as an excuse to do anything you want, but use it to, by love, serve one another. That's what this Christian life is all about. And I trust that you would experience that in your own life. Oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior. 
and love so abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this wonderful book of Luke. Um, Lord, I, I, in many ways this makes me excited to meet him someday and to hear firsthand some of these stories again. And Lord, I just thank you for that you moved on these men to write these accounts so that we could read and believe. You prayed for us in the waning hours before your death, and you said that you wanted us all to be one, and so I, I pray that we would be so. I pray that you would send a revival to our great nation that is not contingent upon skin color, or on any other external, but is only based on our bonds and the blood of Christ. Thank you for the reality of his resurrection. Help us to live in it day by day. In Jesus' name, amen.